Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Jo, for those of you who don't know me. After World War II, the Communist Party assumed control of Romania. And after the takeover, the Romanian communists convened a congress of 4,000 priests, pastors, and ministers of all denominations in their parliament building, with the proceedings being carried out on a national broadcast. One by one, each minister got up and had nothing but words of praise for the communist government and assured this new government of the loyalty of the Christian church. One of the pastors scheduled to speak at this event was a man named Richard Wormbrandt. As he listened and waited, his wife, Sabina, leaned over to him and said, Richard, they are spitting in the face of Christ. Stand up and wash away this shame. He said to her, if I do so, you will lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. So Wormbrandt rose and instead of repeating the same thing every pastor had said, he told the assembly how wrong they were and how this flew in the face of Christian doctrine. At this point, the broadcast was interrupted, it was stopped, and the martyrdom of the Wormbrandts began. Sabina went on to serve eight years in prison, while Richard served a total of 14 years, eight of which were in solitary confinement. As Richard Wormbrandt said himself, in solitary confinement, we could not pray as before. We were unimaginably hungry. The Lord's Prayer was much too long for us. We could not concentrate enough to say it. My only prayer repeated again and again was, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. After he and his wife emigrated to the States, he was called to testify before the United States Senate, stripping to the waist to reveal the 18 wounds he received from torture. A reporter with the Philadelphia Herald said of Wormbrandt's time in prison, he stood in the midst of lions, but they could not devour him. I'm reading this man's autobiography at the moment, and I can honestly say it's the kind of, it's the kind of autobiography you, you kind of read through tears, you kind of wince because it's, it's incredibly painful to read his experience. And to be honest, his story feels particularly poignant today as we pray for Afghanistan, as we think about our brothers and sisters over there who are probably going to face some of similar things that Richard has faced. I'd recommend any one of us to read these kind of stories, these kind of experience of deep suffering, but they do come with a health warning. The health warning is that it's going to touch us deeply. It's going to be painful to read. I do think it, they will encourage us to. But they do come with a health warning. Because with anything, to this degree of suffering, with this exposure to suffering, it raises questions. We've been in this series on how do we depend on God? What does it look like for us to stay put as a church, to root ourselves in God and depend on Him and Him alone? And I don't think we can get past this question of suffering when we're talking about dependence on God. 
I don't think we can go through this series and sort of ignore the hard times in our lives. We need to ask the question, what does it look like to depend on God in hard times? What does it look like when everything's going wrong around us to depend on him? And what are the things that are going to get in our way of doing that? We've already heard this morning about Job, our good friend Job. We've had a whistle-stop tour through his book this morning. And Job is famous, a famous biblical character, really just for one reason. People know him as the man who suffered. The whole book is about his suffering. And just like with Richard's story, I'd really encourage you to sit and go through the ups and downs, read the whole story. It's it's a long one, and it's a hard one to read, but I encourage you to, to sit with him. Sit with Job through the ups and downs. There's something about reading that kind of story that reminds us of the humanity, of the emotion. It helps us to engage with with our own and not just jump to easy answers. But I chose these three passages this morning because, this afternoon, because it, it, it feels like they represent three sort of stages, three movements that we often as human beings go through as we experience suffering or hard times. I want us to have this, an image in our heads this morning that might help us sort of root ourselves a bit. And this is an image of a plant in a pot, just a plant in a pot. And the first movement, this first stage that I think we as human beings can often land ourselves in is um, represented by the kind of plant in a pot that you would get from somewhere like B&Q. You know, that kind of retailer that sort of sells plants that look really good at the beginning. I've recently bought myself a plant from B&Q. It's about six weeks in now, and it's starting to wane. It's the kind of plant that when it faces any sort of adversity, it might be that the moisture content in the air has changed or the temperature started to rise. It starts to look a bit sad. Why is this? Well, it's because the soil that it's been put in hasn't been thought much about. It's pretty thin. It's not necessarily got the nutrients that that particular plant needs. So when it goes through the kind of adversity that our different house environments might throw at it, it struggles. And we often start out in life with a kind of thin philosophy that says, good things happen to good people, right? That's enough. That's what we see in that first passage in Job. Satan is challenging God. He's saying, well, what's going to happen to Job when bad things happen to him? Is he going to be as righteous then? Is he going to be as loyal to you, God, then? That's maybe where we start. There's a simple optimism to life, maybe even a naive optimism to life. And we read that Satan does challenge that. And he, he causes Job to suffer a lot of things. Just to list a few, he suffers financial ruin. He suffers the death of his children. He suffers physical pain. He suffers marital breakdown, the loss of social standing, his whole support network. He's left in complete isolation, apart from the voices of a few friends who quite honestly caused him more hassle than good by basically telling him it was all his fault. So Job can be forgiven at this point, and so can we. 
We can be forgiven at this point for feeling some level of despair when suffering comes. Questioning his life, questioning God. Where are you? And edging towards what I think our second common movement as human beings with experiencing repeated suffering can often land. Cynicism. Suffering leaves us questioning the very goodness of God. It rocks that naive optimism where we started and and leaves us feeling disappointed. And we're not comfortable with that feeling. We don't like feeling disappointed. So the self-preservation starts to kick in, the self-protection, and we think, I don't want to feel, I don't want to feel like this again. So we stop relying on anyone else or on God And we trust ourselves as the only safe place, the only point of reference. And we land in the pretty dark land often of cynicism. It's a hard-hearted place. It looks safe because you think you can trust yourself, but really it's, it's a dangerous place. Cynicism says, this is what's really going on. We thought that was true, but none of it was true. Cynicism says this is what's really going on. If we go back to our image of, of the plant in a pot, it's like cynicism. It's sort of like taking the plant out of that original pot and sort of putting it in sand and saying, oh, I, you know, I'm, soil's not really the right habitat for a plant. Put it in sand, that's better. Or even worse, it's like, it's like taking it out of the pot completely, taking it out of any soil thinking that the pot is, or, the, sand, or the, the soil is the enemy agent. I know better. I know what's really going on. A woman who is reflecting on her own struggle with cynicism writes the following account. Cynicism is taught in our schools, it's embraced by our culture, and lifted up as an ideal. It seems insidious to me, Somehow, these dulled partial truths often feel more real to me than the truths taught by Scripture. It's easier for me to feel skepticism and nothing than to feel deep passion. So cynicism takes root and feels more real to me than truth. I know that I'm not alone in my struggle with cynicism, but most of us are not aware that it is a problem or that it has taken hold in our hearts. It just feels like we can't take joy in things, like we're too aware to trust or to hope. This lady is is not alone, is she? I mean, I recognize the power of cynicism in my own heart, in my own life. It's like a numbing agent, isn't it? It helps us get by. We think it protects us, but actually it's killing us because it's leading us down this deadly road of self-reliance, and it's a lonely road. The cynic is always able to observe and critique things around them, but they're never actually able to engage with it, to love, to hope, to trust. I recognise it most commonly in myself, most regularly in myself, when I'm faced with watching the news. You're just overwhelmed with the suffering, overwhelmed with the pain, don't know what to do with it. So the natural stance is to make a a comment, an observation that doesn't cost me anything, a critique rather than a prayer. 
I detach myself emotionally so that it doesn't cost. But actually, it does cost. It costs me everything because my heart starts becoming harder. I start separating myself from people and from God. If you're in any doubt of the evil root of cynicism, you only have to look three chapters into the Bible. Some of the first words of Satan are cynical words. When, when he's talking to Adam and Eve and getting them to question what God has said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he says these words, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's talking about the fruit there. When you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Satan is suggesting here that God's motives aren't true, that his motives are cynical. Maybe God hasn't been honest with you. Maybe God's protecting himself. Maybe he's jealous. Maybe he's projecting an image of caring for you, but, but actually he just cares about his own agenda. Satan is calling into question the goodness of God before Adam and Eve, and he ultimately leads them to the separation, separation between them and God through lack of trust in him, in his goodness, in his truth. Because that's what cynicism does. It kills our intimacy with God. It kills it. It kills our prayer lives. A real prayer life is passionate. It's all in, it's fiery. It's real, it's honest, it's hoping, it's trusting, it's asking. That all goes out the window if your, if your heart is cynical. A cynic praying just feels like you're faking it. Because really you believe that nothing's possible, so why pray? Paul Miller writes in his book, The Praying Life, in naive optimism, we don't need to pray because everything is under control. Everything is possible. In cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control. Little is possible. With the good shepherd no longer leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, we need something to maintain our sanity. Cynicism's ironic stance is a weak attempt to maintain light-hearted equilibrium in a world gone mad. These aren't just benign cultural trends, they are your life. And at some point, each of us comes face to face with the valley of the shadow of death. We can't ignore it. We can't remain neutral with evil. We either give up and distance ourselves or we learn to walk with the shepherd. There is no middle ground. Without the good shepherd, we are alone in a meaningless story. Weariness and fear leave us feeling overwhelmed, unable to move. Cynicism leaves us doubting, unable to dream. The combination shuts down our hearts and we just show up for life, going through the motions. Some days it's difficult to get out of our pajamas. I wonder if this is something of how Job was feeling at the end of our second passage today. And then God speaks. God speaks to Job and does he give him a play-by-play -play of events, a justification for the suffering, reason why this has all happened, an immediate restoration of everything? 
It doesn't seem to be his strategy. It's like Job is, is saying, it's like God is saying to Job, you know, this running the universe, Job, it's not as, not as simple as it might first appear to you. Job's friends have persistently throughout the book tried to, to make it into this simple question of either God is just or he isn't. Either you've done right or you've done wrong. Is God just? That's a judgment that you can control. It's something that you can keep hold of, that you can quantify, that you can stand over and judge. Even keep yourself detached whilst asking that question. But God here is changing the metrics of the whole story. He's saying, get rid of that self-reliance. Trust in me. He changes the language to trust. He says, stop trying to figure it out yourself. Trust in me. So going back to our image, this third movement, this, first, this, this third place of trusting in God, it, it, it's something like planting a pot in a, in a pot with just the right mix of soil for that particular plant. It's like God is, is one of those gardeners who knows exactly the nutrients that the plant needs. It's maybe the difference between buying a plant from B&Q and buying a plant from Becca's wonderful plant shop, The Water Garden. One of her plants, literally, they never die. So if you want a good plant, go to her. Or for those gardeners, world fans, it might be something similar to giving your plant to Monty Don and saying, pot it up to perfection, Monty. He's a trustworthy gardener. God says to Job, trust me. Trust me in your weakness. Trust me in your suffering. Trust me as a child. Trust their father. And that's the only soil that we can grow in. Richard Wormbrandt himself reflects time and time again in his autobiography about the gift of the suffering that he's encountering. It's hard, it's hard to get your head around, to be honest. But he does. He reflects on the gift of how if we choose it, suffering can be the ground, the soil in which we learn to depend on God, the soil in which we grow the most, that we learn what it means to be completely surrendered. So rather than avoiding suffering for fear of it wrecking your relationship with God, it actually becomes the very place of growth. It's what Paul is talking about in those famous passages from, from 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Sounds a bit like Job here, doesn't it? Verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can bring ourselves to lean into God in times of hardship, in suffering, to depend on him, we might just find that our metaphorical plants start growing a bit faster. 
But how do we resist the temptation to rely on ourselves in those moments? What does it look like to say no to those things? What can we be growing in our lives in the meantime that can help us avoid that voice of cynicism, that temptation that can come in those moments when we just don't know what's going on, when we just don't understand and we can't see the wood for the trees? How do we avoid that self-protection mechanism? Well, as always, I think Jesus leads us in the right direction. There's, there's many examples, but I, I'm just going to choose three this morning. Three ways, three things that I think Jesus calls us to, to grow, to cultivate in our lives in every season as a sort of antidote to cynicism. I guess with the image, the plant pot image, it's like these are nutrients that you can be putting into your soil on a regular basis so that when the hard times come, you're going to feel more robust. Your plant is going to grow. So firstly, cultivate confidence in the goodness of God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus in no way expects naive optimism from his disciples. In fact, he doesn't want them to be naive in any way. He is fully aware of the evil that is present around them. To be a sheep amongst wolves requires a certain amount of wariness. Wariness of evil. He keeps in tension this wariness of evil with a confident, a robust confidence in, goodness, in the goodness of God, in the goodness of his heavenly Father. He follows up these verses with some more later on in the chapter. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. He's wanting to get across to them Do you know how much your father cares for you? Do you know how much he sees, how able he is? No matter what the depth of evil that you might face around you, he is always, his love is always deeper. It runs further. We see the same response in Job. Job. God spends a significant amount of time at the end of the book listing off the ways that he fathers the universe. That's what he's doing. You say, Job, do you not see? Do you not see the the vastness of my authority and and the depth of my care for my creation? Jesus calls us, he calls his disciples, he calls you, his disciples here today, to be similarly wary of the evil around you, to not be naive, to not expect life to just give you roses, but to be confident that your father is good and that he holds you through it all. Cultivate childlike wonder and gratitude. In Mark 10, 14, Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Alan Jacobs, in his biography of C.S. Lewis, the great author who gave us the kingdom of Narnia, reflected that those who will never be fooled can never be delighted. 
Because without self-forgetfulness, there can be no delight. It's what we see in, in this author that has given us such, such wonderful children's stories that have lasted the, lasted the test of time. And, you know, I wonder, what is that? How did he create such incredible, wonderful, wonder-filled stories? We never lost his sense of wonder. He never stopped approaching his father as a child. He never made his God too small. If you practice childlike wonder in your everyday life, you're going to find it a lot easier to see God in the hard times. You start to see his fingerprints everywhere when you, when you stop to wonder. Have you ever looked up in the sky and thought, how are those clouds staying up there? Have you ever looked into a rock pool and thought, how is this ecosystem still alive? The the waves are going back and forth. Have you ever looked at the, the roots of a tree and thought, gosh, they were there before my grandparents? Just those little moments where we notice things and we wonder a little bit more beyond our own comprehension. Because that kind of wonder leads us to gratitude. It leads us to a place where we can see beyond what is right in front of us. It's not about just focusing on the good things, of ignoring all the bad things. It's about reordering our lives towards God. That's what gratitude does. It clarifies a a deeper, a truer, a wider reality than we can grasp in any given moment. Finally, cultivate repentance. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, a person who does not know themselves to be pure and right with God, who lives a divided life, will only ever be able to see a world that is not right and pure with God. They will only ever be able to see a divided world and divided people around them. They will always be suspicious of those around them. They will always be cynical. If you know that your own heart is divided before God, if you know that your life is, falls into public and private, be that you're a good friend on the outside, but then you gossip about someone behind closed doors and your public and private starts to go way separate from one another and you feel the divided heart in yourself. And then you start to project that outwards and all you can see is suspicious people. All you can see is a replication of what you know is true in yourself. So you'll never be able to get past the cynicism. You'll be double-minded, as James James talks about in his letter. The act of repentance, the reason it's so powerful is it's because it brings that divided self back together again. It comes to God in all honesty and says, here I am. And that private, hidden, shame-filled self becomes the public, freed self. Peace with yourself through God enables you to see a world 
that's not quite so cynical. You're not trapped by the worst perception of yourself, so therefore you're not trapping those around you. Repentance is a really powerful tool against cynicism, and we don't use it nearly often enough. Often because we're too self-reliant, we're too proud to get ourselves there. So... We will all experience suffering. Every one of us will experience some level of suffering in our lives. We will all experience the the questions, the doubts that come from those places. We don't want to settle for a naive optimism this morning. But the key decision I think we've got in our hands to make this morning is, where do we put our trust? In whom do we depend? Because it's in this moment, in hard times, that it... It really matters. Do you put it in yourself? Or do you put it in God? Paul Miller writes that both a child and a cynic will go through the valley of the shadow of death at some point. The difference is that the cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on their good father. And that's the ask this morning. Experiencing suffering can be really fertile soil or experiencing the goodness of God. It can be where that intimacy, that dependence can grow the most. Just this year, for me, I, I've experienced real bouts of, uh, repeated bouts of illness that have, have left me feeling at the end of myself, weak and struggling to know how to put one foot in front of the other some days. And honestly, that, that sort of end of the self-feeling could have led me in two directions. And I knew I had to make a choice. I had to make multiple choices, actually. And having made the choice to to trust, to rely on God in the darkest moments, in the weakest moments, I can honestly stand here today feeling freer, feeling more myself, feeling more hopeful, more alive, more reliant on Him, more hopeful for the future, If stories like Richard Wormbrandt's teach us anything, if they teach us anything, it's that actually this is, these seasons, the the stripping back seasons, are the time when disciples are made. And we want to be a church that is rooted enough to stay put, is dependent enough kind of disciples that that Jesus wants in his church. It may not make logical sense that suffering is that path. It may not be what we want. It may not be the road that we would choose. But it is the way of dependence. It's the kind of cultivation that stares in the face of death itself and does not run away. That's what we're called to at Trinity. It's the kind of life we want to lead. We don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to be fair weather Christians. So why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray, ask for God's Spirit to help translate whatever He wants to to your heart, to my heart. Joanna and the band are going to lead us.
just invite you, Spirit of God, as you come and fall in this room. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. You are the one that knew suffering. You are the one, God, who knows each one of us. Come, Holy Spirit. Reveal to us, God, where we've become hard of heart. Reveal to us where there is distance, where we've created distance between ourselves and you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the perfect Father. You never leave your children. heart to us. Lord, we give back to you our lives. We surrender again, God, to to dependence solely on you, God. And we repent, we turn away from our self-protection mechanisms, all that we put in the way to, to dampen the effects of suffering of those around us, of ourselves. walks around the room and breathes on the the ice statues that the witch has has brought to stone. And I just see Jesus doing that this morning, wanting to do that, breathing his breath on the hard parts, on the things that you've hardened yourself or others have hardened in you. You come and breathe breath of God.
dead things back to life, God. Bring dead, bring dead dreams back to life. I pray that for each person in this room that has lowered their expectations of what you can do through them. That you'd resurrect dreams. God, where we've been disappointed and we've given up. God, resurrect hope in this place. Take our trust deeper.